for our sermon today, I want us to turn to Psalm 22, the 22nd Psalm. If you'd like to follow along in the reading of the text, it will be found there in verse 18 of Psalm 22. I won't take the time to read uh, through this psalm as we did last week, but we're just going to take up verse 18 as that will be my text that we will be dealing with. Psalm 22 and verse 18. And here we read, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now, as you know, this message is a continuation of our sermons upon Psalm 22. This psalm, in part, records for us a marvelous description of the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. It gives us one of the most detailed accounts of his sufferings found in the Old Testament. We are aware that his death was, of course, foretold many times and in diverse ways in the Old Testament. But this psalm surely gives us the clearest description of his sufferings that is revealed before the revelation of the New Testament. While there are many places in the Old Testament that give us information of the coming of Christ, his work, his person, but this passage is marvelous in the fact that it is clearly affirmed in the New Testament that it is speaking of Jesus Christ and the person of David. As we pointed out numerous times, this psalm is referenced and referred to by the writers of the Gospels in several places. We are reminded of the words of our Lord to his disciples there in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, as Luke tells us, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now, several things we can quickly note from this passage that I read just a second ago, that these things, he said, must be fulfilled. Secondly, in our context of our psalm, those things were written, he said, in the Psalms itself. And then thirdly, they were written concerning him. So even our Lord Jesus testifies that not only Moses and the prophets spoke of him, but also that he is mentioned in the Psalms as well. Uh, John 5, verse 39, he says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Then the verses following what our Lord just said there, we notice in the book Gospel of Luke that we quoted a moment ago, he says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. From these things we can see then that such were written of him, that they were written of him in the scriptures, that such things must be fulfilled, and that he must suffer, and that they do testify of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, every believer, that is, every Christian, believes this to be true. And with such faith, then we're going to turn back to Psalm 22, verse 18, believing and holding it to be true. So let's read the text again where it says there, they part my garments among them and cast lots 
upon my vesture. As we open up this passage, I want us to see, first of all, that the verse, I want us to see the verse in a general way. Now, by this, I mean I want to open and consider some general overall truths that can be drawn from this text. There is nothing about the tellings of the crucifixion and sufferings that are recorded in the Bible that are unimportant or insignificant. They all have a purpose. They all have meaning. And I'm sure you know that this would go for all things, of course, that are written and revealed to us in the Word of God. We not, may not be able to plumb the depths of those recorded words, but nonetheless, they are important and significant in some way and in some manner. So let's never be guilty of concluding that those things of the Holy Word of God, that is the Bible, are unimportant. With that thought then, our text, verse 18, I want you to know is quoted in all four of the gospel accounts given to us of our Lord's sufferings and his crucifixion. For instance, in Matthew 27, verse 35, we read these words, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Again, in Mark 15, verse 24, And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Luke 23, verse 34 says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And then in the fourth gospel, that is the gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, he says, Then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So we see here the four writers of these Gospels must have deemed it necessary and important to include this prophecy of Scripture. Without doubt, as we believe the Holy Spirit was that saw that they did record this through the miraculous means of divine inspiration, God deemed it as well to be necessary and important to include this verse in all four of the Gospels. Now, this can't be said of the other sayings or events of the crucifixion of Christ that are recorded by those four authors of the Gospel. And here, too, you understand this is not saying, nor am I implying here, that because they do not say everything that each of them do, it doesn't make it any less true or unimportant or unnecessary. I'm just pointing out the fact that this is so. Now, another general aspect of this passage is that, as we have been often reminded, these words were uttered by our Lord Jesus. Actually, these words are a narrative describing an event that transpired during his terrible 
and painful ordeal upon the cross. These words are not relating, of course, to his physical pains and torments he was suffering, as we have seen him mention in several accounts in this passage of Scripture. Such verses you remember as uh, verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And again in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. And then in verse 16, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. So we see in those passages he is describing something of his physical torments that he was going through. Here in our passage, though, he's describing what was taking place. And he's given an account of a group of men who were there at the scene of the cross. Now, we've spoken before of the several men and women that consisted of the crowd surrounding the cross. The various people made up of the crowd of folks that day who had come to see the crucifixion of the one who had been condemned, both by the religious Jews and the Roman civil government. They were present, there were present various groups and individuals who were beholding the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Some were his friends, one was his disciple, and of course another was his mother. And then there were his enemies, and they would include the Jewish leaders, and finally there were some soldiers who crucified him. It was the last group of which he is referring, the soldiers of Rome. These, those make of the they and the them of our passages. Read there, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The they is referring to the soldiers and them of verse 18 is referring to the soldiers. So as he's hanging upon the cross during the great pains, he views this And thus, these are the words that are found in verse 18. So, they make up the them and the they, as I said, of this passage. The Roman soldiers whose duty it was to carry out the death sentence pronounced upon him by their governor. Again, John tells us, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they part my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So we have no question here, verse 18 is referring here, to the soldiers that had crucified him. And so our Lord Jesus takes note of this. And as, I, as far as we can tell, again from verse 18, he speaks these words to his heavenly Father as he's beseeching him to help him in his troubles as it is spoken there in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And so this is part of the 
prayer or the petition that he's offering up unto his father. And we can see even in the closer proximity of this passage in verses 19 and 21, he again see that he pleased with God. He says, be not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. So these words of our text then are from our Lord petitioning his father for deliverance. And these words then are as well as those other words are his arguments to God to be heard. But not only that, still, these are the words of the prophet David. Remember, as we read in the title there, that this is a psalm of David. In fact, we read in Matthew 27, verse 35, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And thus, as they are spoken by the prophet, that would make them a prophecy. Now, a prophecy is, uh, simply put, is an utterance of some future event that was to take place. These words, which were penned 1,000 years before Christ in this event of his crucifixion, were waiting then to be fulfilled. And it was upon the day and hour of our Lord as he was crucified that they were fulfilled just as the prophet, that is the prophet David, has spoken. Now, we know from this then that King David was a true prophet, as we can see that these words did come to pass. That, you know, was a sign and a testimony that he was a true prophet and that his words were true. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, The Lord gives the children of Israel a way to know and to make sure that a prophet, when he spoke, was speaking the truth. And he gives us this, he says, But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is, the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. Now how could David, living a thousand years before Christ was born, and then to suffer, how could he have spoken such a thing? How did he know to say this? Well, the Apostle Peter supplies us an answer to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we read, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So David spake such things as he was moved by the Spirit of God to do so. Now, whether it be of David or some other prophet, they did so by the Spirit of God, as we read Peter saying here. Now, they may not have known the details of the when or the where or the why or the, or the how, 
or even perhaps that they were even doing so because that wasn't necessary for them to know all that. But as Peter does tell us in 1 Peter, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come upon you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So we know those Old Testament prophets, as we've seen in other passages of Scripture, foretold of the coming of Christ and even of the sufferings of Christ, as David does here in this psalm, Psalm 22. Now, while they are the words of the Lord Jesus, as we see on the cross, but nonetheless, they are spoken here or written here by David speaking in the person of Christ. Not only that, we read generally here in this passage that these words are Scripture. Again, quoting John in John 19, verse 24, They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore... The soldiers did. So we see here that John refers this as the scripture. And the scripture, of course, that he's quoting is taken from Psalm 22 and verse 18. And so as these words then are scripture, they are authoritative, they're true, they're right, they're holy, they're profitable, and they're worthy to be believed and to be received of which, of course, I doubt that none of you here who are listening would doubt that. But just because God's word is true and all authoritative and all those things that we may say about God's word, it doesn't mean that it can or will be believed. For example, the prophet Jeremiah, given the Jews the word from God regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, and they refused to believe it. He had told them that God said that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and take the city, and they refused to hold to that as to being the truth. It was the word of God. It was the truth of God. But men did not receive it. Or even the Jews of our Lord's day, when he testified unto them that he was the Son of God and that the Scriptures testified of him. But they didn't believe him. They didn't believe the Scriptures either. In John 44, Jesus describes such a scene as this. He says, How can you believe, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words. So even though these words are the word of God and they are true, they are profitable, they are trustworthy and so forth, that doesn't mean men are going to believe them. And this, of course, is true not only in the times in which the Bible was written, but as we think of it today, as most mankind today does not believe the word of God. These, then, are some general statements that can be drawn from the words of verse 18. 
So secondly, then, at this point, I want to speak of the words and a closer look in verse 18. So my second major head are the words of our Lord and their meaning. The words of our Lord and their meaning. There are two things going on here. Two things that are transpiring before the Lord among these soldiers. First, from these words, that is verse 18, we can see he is looking upon the soldiers as they are taking his garments and dividing them up among themselves. Now, you remember uh, a while back as we were preaching upon this uh, a passage in this, we made note how that the Lord, though he was going through such terrible agonies and pain, he still had all of his wits about him. Even though he was suffering greatly, he still had a sound mind. And so he's just not saying things here because of the pain and of the, uh, the great pressures that are upon him, but he really knows what's going on. And so he knows that before him that these soldiers are doing those things that are recorded there for us in verse 18. So from these words then, we can see that he's looking upon these soldiers, and they're taking his garments, and they're dividing them up among themselves. You notice again in verse 18, it says there, they part my garments among them. That they, as we pointed out, are the soldiers in charge of the crucifixion. Now, John tells us indirectly that there were four soldiers doing this deed. Now, there may have been more soldiers there. It would have made sense if there were more. There may have been the fear that some would have protested the crucifixion, so a larger number of, of soldiers would have been necessary to be there. There may have been more just for the fact that surely... This had drawn the attention of many, and there would have been a great need of policing the people. But again, we're not told. All that we can say of sh for sure here at this point is that there are four soldiers. John says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. They divided up the garments into the number of soldiers, which, of course, were four. We spoke last week of the fact that they had removed his clothing. The clothing they had taken from him consisted, as we will see, as we see here, of five pieces, all total, as we will have noted. Now, this may not have included all of his clothes. They may have left him some, or they may have not. We don't know. Again, we're just not informed by the scriptures. We do know they took his garments, as all four of the writers of the Gospels tell us. And by the way, it's John who gives us the most complete details of this. While all four mention, that is, all four of the Gospel writers mention it, it's John who has the most to say about it. And we can see from the other three writers, they directly tells us that this event took place when he was crucified. In other words, they nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross, they set it up, that is the cross into the ground, and then this scene in verse 18 transpires. The garments referred to were his clothing. Those particular clothes were then able to be divided up, he says here, into four parts. John again, as we notice, affirms this. Now this taking of his clothes, some tell us, that is the commentators, 
was according to the custom of that day of an executioner who had the right to have what the condemned one had in his possession. And, of course, all that he had then was his clothes. And so those men then took the liberty to part his garments among themselves. Now, secondly, the second clause of our text mentions his vesture. He says, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now, some have made a great distinction between the two words mentioned in our passage, garments and vesture. But generally speaking, both words refer to clothing. For instance, Psalm 102, verse 26, they, had, they shall pierce, they, let me say that again, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture, thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. Luke refers to verse 18 of Psalm 22 as raiment, as he references that passage. He says there, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Matthew, Mark, and John use the words garments and vesture. So the distinction seems to be here is only that, that there is a difference that the vesture at this point is referring to a coat that was in one piece. Again, looking back to John, he says, then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. The last clause, then, of our text shows us that what they did cast lots for was his vesture, but as John interprets it here and understands it to be his coat. The casting of lots, as mentioned here in verse 13, 18, was a way by which the clothing, if we're to understand this to be his vesture or coat, could be divided up. What this casting of lots included, one cannot say with complete accuracy. The act of casting lots is mentioned several times in the scripture. Just the phrase, for instance, casting lots, is mentioned over 20 times in the Bible. But in none of them is it laid out just exactly how it happened. But we do see the casting of lots in scripture. For instance, and this is probably not what most people would think about when they think about casting of lots. But this is how the scripture refers to it. The first time, it's in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So the way that Aaron was to determine which goat, the scapegoat was to be for the Lord and the other one to go out, it was determined by the casting of lots. In Joshua, the way in which the land was divided up was by lots as well. He re- we read in chapter 18, verse 6, Ye shall therefore describe the land into seven parts, 
and bring the description hither to me, and I may that I may cast lots for you before the Lord our God. Again, Joshua 18, verse 8, And the men arose and went away. And Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it and come again to me, that I may here cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. So it was used then in the, in the distribution of the land. Third existence is in 1 Samuel 14, verse 42. And that's when you remember uh, Saul and Jonathan. Saul had made the people swear that they wouldn't eat that day at all and until they had had this great battle. And, of course, uh, Jonathan partook of the honey, and they were trying to figure out who it was that broke the covenant. And it, we read there in verse 42, And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. In other words, the, the lot came down to Jonathan. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, we see the early church there practicing this. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see that the casting of lots, whatever that may have entailed, was something that was used during biblical times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Solomon even tells us the casting of lot can end strifes and arguments. Proverbs 18, verse 18. The lot causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty. But the end of casting lots, that is, what will be determined, is of the Lord. In other words, when the lot is cast, it's God who has ordained who would be the winner, or what would be distributed, or whatever the case may be. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't blind luck that the lot went to Matthias or that the lot fell upon Jonathan or the description of the land was given to certain individuals or which was the scapegoat and which was the goat that went to, the, uh, to be sacrificed. None of that was by chance. None of it was by luck. It was by the disposing of the Lord himself. So when we come to this passage in verse 18, this is exactly what they were doing. They were casting lots in order to determine who was going to win the vesture, who was going to get it. Now, we don't know which of the four soldiers won the lot, but we do know, and we can safely say, it was the one whom the Lord God had ordained. Now, let me give a little side note at this, because I've heard sermons regarding this, but there are those who think, in reality, they have no better text than this, or with nothing else to preach upon this, than to misuse this passage to speak about gambling. Such individuals need something to help them in their sermonizing, and in such case and time, they must be as indifferent to the sufferings of our Savior as these Roman soldiers. Now, thirdly, let's give us some thoughts as to our passage and way of benefit to us. As we just read this short verse and 
expounded it. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. What do we learn from that? What should we learn from it? First, we can learn from this passage the lowliness of the position of our Lord as he assumed our nature as a man. He was reduced to nothing more than his clothes. They were his possessions. Here was a king who who owned all creation, who was the creator of all things. He possessed everything as he was God. But he left such glory to become a man, a man who was king but lived as one who was a commoner among men. Even Jesus himself said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In other words, he so identified himself with his people to, in order to redeem them. He was left nothing but his clothes, and even that was taken from him. You remember in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, we might think that's a great thing, speaking about humiliation of Christ and and the verses that following being the exaltation of Christ. But the Apostle Paul saw something very significant about this fact of him being a man, him being humbled, even to the point to the cross. And Paul has that great truth in view when he writes these words here. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not Every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into that passage that I read, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You see, that passage of Scripture wasn't just for Paul to speak of the glory of Christ as he was the one who was humbled and took his position as a servant But Paul saw there's some very good application to us in that. And that is that we're not to be high-minded, that we're not to be proud, and that we're to be humbled, and that we're to be like-minded towards one another, having love, being of one accord, not in dissension or strife, but be of one mind, he says, not being vain, having vain glory. So there are some very profitable things to think on When we come to verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Makes a lot more sense than preaching a sermon on gambling, doesn't it? Secondly, the commentator John Stevenson in his book on, I think, I can't recall the name of it, but he has a sermon upon this very passage, and he said this, kind of similar to what we were saying there. 
But he says, trifling as this act of casting the lot for our Lord's vesture may, may appear, it is most significant. It contains a double lesson. It teaches us how greatly that seamless shirt was valued, how little he had to be, or how little he had to whom it belonged. It seemed to say this garment is more valuable than its owner. And as it said of the 30 pieces of silver, a goodly price at which I was prized out of, out of them. So may we say regarding the casting of the lot, how cheaply Christ was held. In other words, they were more concerned about what they could gain than the Lord of glory hanging before them. The third thing we can notice here is the utter disregard of the one upon the cross whom the soldiers had humiliated. As we mentioned last week, he is stripped of his clothing. He's naked here before men. And how degrading that must have been to the Son of God. Do these soldiers care about that? Are they standing there thinking, oh, how terrible this is? No. Are they bowing before him? No. While they should have bowed before him, they instead cast lots for his raiment and garments. And then lastly, what do we think of these soldiers, or at least one of these soldiers? We notice these four soldiers were at this point busy ignoring the Lord demonstrating their disregard, their disrespect, and hatred for the Lord of glory. They're the ones who actually drove the nails into his hands, into his feet. They're the ones who lifted up the cross and stuck it in the ground for, them, for him to suffer. They viewed him as a criminal, one who had deserved the treatment he was receiving. They saw him as a means to increase their own possessions. And at least in one sense, they were indifferent to what was going on. Now we would think, well, there's no hope here. Look at these men. Look how terrible they were acting towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But we read... In Matthew 27, something amazing, and also in Luke, I'll show you in just a moment. But in Matthew 27, verse 54, he's now, he says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Luke says this in verse 23 and verse 47 of one of them. He says, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Now, if this was a token of conversion, if this was the moment in which this man or these men were born again, isn't this another instance of God's grace? You remember there was another one who was converted at this time, and that was the other thief that was on the cross. And he too was a trophy of God's grace, as they say. But here are these four men, or at least one of them, 
comes to his senses by the grace of God and cries out that this was the Son of God and that certainly this was a righteous man. If this was their conversion or his conversion, certainly this is an instance of God plucking one out of the fire, an instance of sovereign, distinguishing grace, of God showing mercy and grace to a few and leaving others in their sins. It's a demonstration of God choosing whom he pleases, saving whom he pleases, and damning whom he pleases. We read these passages in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, For even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. It's amazing that that passage in verse 20, chapter 27, verse 54 says they feared greatly. Well, hearing this ought to make folks fear greatly. That God has compassion on some and not on others. That ought to make men to fear. Just as these men feared the Lord. May God bless this to us today. Amen.